Cool Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock materials. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. No flight back vintage, bringing fun, new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at no flight back vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Find our cute and sustainable fashion pics at the Silver Lake Flea and on Instagram at vino.vintage. And Shop Journal, upcycled, handmade, and vintage clothing and accessories. One woman owned and operated in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They love details, bright colors, and everything extra. This month, they're donating to Fair Fight Action. Getting dressed should be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that lives a lot like a Depression-era grandma. I'm your host, Amanda. Today is kind of like a mega episode, just so much going on, and maybe I say that all the time, but I feel like every episode has more going on than the one before, which is a good thing, right? So let's see what's going on in this one. Well, we'll have the second part of my conversation with Jillian, which you expected, We'll talk about minimalism as an aesthetic for the wealthy. We'll talk about classist kombucha ads. And we'll also talk about how the big brands and retailers are just completely out of touch. Surprise. (laughs) This episode also includes a phone conversation with Sarah of Wide-Eyed Vintage about, among other things, high school years filled with being a proud outfit non-repeater. There's so much good like food for thought in today's episode. First, you know what it's time to do. We have to thank our newest Patreon sponsors. 
First is Luca Mani from Portland, Oregon, the place I consider my home. She's the proprietor of Luca Mani Clothing, which I urge you to check out because everything in her Etsy shop is so rad. Lots of cool upcycled quilt stuff, which is my jam. Check it out. Thanks for being a patron, Luca. Also, Susan Massey of Oakland, California. As you know by now, I like to hunt down my patrons on Instagram, and I'm pretty sure I found you, Susan. You have a black cat, which means you're my kind of gal. So thank you for supporting Clothes Horse. And we have a new Pegasus sponsor, Cassidy O'Hara. She owns sustainable fashion brand Blank Cass, which lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass. And she says, I have found the sustainable fashion crowd to be such a breath of fresh air. Thank you, Cassidy. I know we are all so glad to have you here. If you would like to support the show and me, Amanda, via Patreon, you can find more information at patreon.com slash podcast. I'll also share a link in the show notes. I mean, I work a minimum, and this is the minimum number of 60 hours each week, probably more like 70 on Clothes Horse. And yes, I realize that is a lot of hours, but I'm really passionate about what I'm doing and your support allows me to keep doing it. If you can't become a patron, that's totally fine too. There are many other ways that you can support the show that don't cost any money at all. That includes recommending it to a friend, sharing and saving our content on Instagram, and leaving a rating slash review on Apple Podcasts. Or do none of that and just keep listening because that's the best thing you can do for me. So thank you for tuning in. Okay. You know that I'm obsessed with the Clothes Horse Hotline. And today we have a message from Rita, aka Pantsy Witch. Hi, I'm calling. Love your podcast. Um, I'm calling to talk about, I'm part of this like Facebook fashion group and like small makers, ethical fashion. And I find it really interesting that uh, some of the companies that they support when I look at their stuff, I don't necessarily think that it's slow fashion. Um, a company that comes, well, there's a couple of companies that come to mind. Um, the company Pact and then the, you know, ARQ, um, an underwear company. And while both of these companies source organic cotton, which obviously, you know, about this, that's not necessarily the end all be all. Um, they kind of, I guess it's technically greenwashing, but um, they kind of flout this whole, like, sustainable fashion thing. And while definitely their pieces are more expensive than, say, like, going to Walmart or Target or American Eagle or, you know, any of your kind of classic fast fashion, it's definitely not at the price point that I'm convinced is fashion. I worked as a seamstress for the last six years for a um, organic underwear company, and uh, our price points were definitely higher. And I was getting paid. I worked in Seattle, so I was getting paid the higher end of a minimum wage. Definitely not a living wage, but way more than most people who are sewing get paid. And so I'm just kind of confused as to how people can see these prices and think, oh, my goodness, this is totally slow fashion without thinking, how much are they paying for the fabric? How much are they paying to run their company? And then on top of that, production. Like, it just doesn't 
it doesn't quite add up. And I know that a lot of these companies say, oh, we're, you know, made in the U.S. But I, from my understanding, a lot of companies in the U.S. are able to use law loopholes to pay uh, seamstresses by the piece, which, in my opinion, is not a living wage. But so I'm just – I would love to hear you talk about that a little bit more because um, I know you have talked about greenwashing, but – it's kind of interesting to see this different kind of greenwashing within what is like, what is seen as ethical fashion. Um, yeah, so I'd love to hear you talk about that. My name is Rita. Thanks so much. Bye. Rita brings up so many really good points here because, as you know by now, it seems like everyone is greenwashing all the time. <sighs> But I will say, I'm super stoked that Rita is questioning what these companies are saying because, you know, most people wouldn't. We just take this at face value. Let's start with what Rita said about working for a brand making organic underwear and making a little bit more than minimum wage, which, of course, if you've been listening long enough, is not a living wage. Like, right away, I would hope that that brand isn't calling itself sustainable because, as I say all the time, yes... Half of being sustainable is, you know, being eco-conscious, saving water, being responsible with resources and, you know, not using toxic chemicals, blah, 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 all that stuff. But the other half of sustainability, which is just as important as all that stuff, is lifting people out of poverty. And I cannot say that enough. No brand can claim sustainability if they aren't paying their workers. That said... We can't always assume that just because something isn't crazy expensive, it doesn't mean it's not ethical or sustainable. Well, I mean, to a certain extent, right? Because a $5 shirt will literally never be sustainable because there's just not enough cost there to actually pay someone. In the best case scenario, everybody who worked on that shirt is getting paid a total of 20 cents. Like picture that as the tip jar at the restaurant where everybody who works in the restaurant gets a cut of that. That's the same kind of scenario that's happening here. All of these people who made the fabric, who did the sewing, who dyed the fabric, who packed up the order, sewed in the labels, made the labels, et cetera, et cetera, they would all be getting paid a total of 20 cents, which they would have to share amongst themselves. But conversely, because everything is unreliable and untrustworthy right now, expensive things aren't always made sustainably and ethically. It's kind of all about the markup, also known as margin, that the brand is trying to make on what they sell. A few months ago, the brand Christy Dawn did a great Instagram post that sort of broke down the cost of a dress. They show that they are paying about $20 per hour for sewing and about $8 for fabric. I think it's dead stock. But they also showed that they're making a three times markup, which is pretty decent for selling directly to customers. But most brands are making more like a four times markup when they sell directly to customers. As we've talked about in the past, if they're selling wholesale, they're probably only making like a two times markup on anything they sell wholesale. So for a lot of brands, it's in their best interest to sell directly to you. And so when we talk about margin for the rest of this conversation, I'm going to be talking about the kinds of margin that you would make 
selling directly to a customer. And also just want to say that when we look at fast fashion and a lot of the big mass retailers, which have all become fast fashion at this point, they're making anywhere from a five to 10 times markup. So even a four times markup, I know that sounds greedy probably to you, but to be honest, it's on the low end, you know, and Remember, that markup has to pay for all the salaries of the people who work in the office, the rent on the office, the rent on the warehouse, paying the warehouse workers, right? Designers, um, the copy machine, office supplies, you know, I mean, taxes, lawyer's fees, the accountant. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Like brands need to make a markup to cover all of those expenses. So also making a markup is a good thing because it keeps your business going and it doesn't necessarily mean you're making a profit at the end of the day. So all of the stuff that Christy Dawn broke down on Instagram, which I'll try to share in stories this week after the episode comes out, it seems like a pretty legit situation to me. And I have to say, it's refreshing to see a situation in which the labor costs more than the fabric. In fast fashion, it's always the other way around a few dollars for the fabric, a few cents for the sewing. And so all of Christy Dawn's financial breakdown there made sense to me. It made sense that this was an ethical brand who was doing the right thing. But also the dress that they're selling was $208. So it wasn't $20. It wasn't 75. It was expensive, right? Not expensive when you look at the grand scheme of things, that it was made ethically, that the people who worked on it made a living wage, it was made of dead stock fabric. All of these things are good, right? Assuming that the quality is great as well. I've never bought anything from Christy Dawn. This is a $208 for that dress is a good deal. Okay, so I'd like to contrast Christy Dawn with Reformation because a lot of you message me about this brand on Instagram all the time. And I have to start this by saying I'm not a fan. I'm sure you've seen some of the exposés that have come out this summer. It's not the best environment to work in. When you live in LA, you hear crazy stories about working there all the time. And I will also say that they are super notorious. They've done this to multiple friends of mine for having people do these elaborate projects as part of the interview process. They give them a crazy deadline, like it needs to be done in the next 24 hours. They drop everything. They work 24 hours straight on this project. They submit it. And then guess what? Crickets. They get ghosted. And several people that I know both like professionally and socially have been like, yeah, I did this project. Three months later, there's my project in as actual product on their website. So I've always had not good feelings about this brand. (laughs) But I'm going to try to be as like unemotional while I compare them to Christy Dawn. Okay. So based on the pricing that I'm seeing on the Reformation site, they are taking at least, and I mean, at least a four times markup. I think it could be five or six based on the pricing. And I could not find anywhere on the internet how much they're paying their sewers. So I'd love to hear that if you know that information. And I can see based on actual Glassdoor information, by the way, Glassdoor is always your best resource for finding out if a company is an asshole or not. (laughs) 
they are not paying a living wage to their retail workers. It's just above minimum wage. And most of these workers live in the city, so it's not really, doesn't go as far, right? And of course, like I mentioned, a ton of articles blew up the internet this summer about retail workers working under dangerous and unpleasant conditions in their stores. So they have a lot of work to do there if they want to claim they're sustainable, because once again, sustainability is also about people and workers, right? Also, I feel like Reformation is very trendy, and I know their grand plan there has always been to be sustainable fast fashion, but sustainable fast fashion is an oxymoron since there's no magical fabric or factory that allows us to buy endless amounts of new trendy clothes without impacting the planet and its people, period. So you can't be sustainable fast fashion. And I would say being super trendy is by default fast fashion because the clothing doesn't have the longevity, right? Also, right now, a big chunk of the Ref website seems to be 50% off, probably because of Black Friday, holidays, that kind of stuff. That makes me think that they are taking an even bigger markup than the four times I mentioned because they have to plan to sell this stuff at a deep discount and still make a profit. Now, sustainable ethical clothing can be affordable, but only if it's on a larger scale. Like there's savings to be found in numbers, you know, like going to Costco and buying a pallet of toilet paper. It is cheaper per roll than going and buying one at the deli, right? More sustainable fabric and dye options are currently expensive, but they could come down in price considerably if they became the standard. If everyone, if the gaps of the world, if H&M, if Forever 21, if everyone was buying into that. And to me, it would be amazing to reach a point where we were all wearing affordable, totally non-evil clothing, where the manpower to make it costs more than the materials and the materials are still actually sustainable, right? But we're not even close to being there yet. So right now we rely on small brands and makers for sustainable options. And you know what? They cost a lot of money, right? These materials cost these small brands a lot because they don't have the buying power to make a huge commitment and possibly get that sort of like bulk discount. And these materials are not the norm yet. So only a few people make them and the pricing isn't as competitive. And you know, the infrastructure to make this stuff easily and efficiently isn't really in place. So let's talk about the two brands that Rita mentioned, ARQ and Pact. So ARQ is using organic cotton and it's dyeing their garments using GOTS certified processes, which means the dye process is required to use the least amount of water possible. That's great. But as we know now, organic cotton is better in most ways than regular cotton because it uses no pesticides and it also uses twice as much water. And Overall, once again, there is no fabric that allows us to buy tons and tons of clothes. So great for the organic cotton, but like once again, don't buy a ton of it, right? In terms of production, ARQ says, quote, we contract with a family-owned U.S. sewing factory that we are really proud to have as a partner. I mean, 
that's not enough transparency for me. And so I'm saying I would love to know more because as we've talked about in previous episodes, made in the U.S. does not mean a living wage. It does not mean good conditions. To be honest, neither does fair wage, right? They mentioned that later in their little like about us and our production. I want to hear living wage, not fair wage. Fair wage is nebulous. It doesn't mean anything. What I think is fair, you may not think is fair. And I might say that a wage is fair, but if you can't live off of it, I bet you're going to think it's unfair, right? I also don't want to hear legal minimum wage because as we know, that is also not fair and not livable. And family-owned factory means nothing to me because most factories are owned by a family, even overseas. And you know what? I'm sure you have too. I've known some terrible families that I wouldn't want running the factory where I'm working. So yeah, I think there's a little bit of greenwashing there, or at least a lack of transparency. And I want to see the real words like living wage, benefits for all workers. I mean, how is their warehouse staff being paid? That's another good question. They don't mention it. Okay, well, how about PACT? Well, PACT is also using organic cotton and they're using fair trade certified factories. So here's the thing about fair trade factories. It doesn't mean a living wage, but it does mean at the very least the country's minimum wage, which in most countries, including the United States, is a poverty wage. Now, PACT makes their stuff overseas. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but I just want you to remember that too. Fair trade does some good things, okay? The standards for certification require equal treatment for men and women, monitored hours, which sounds silly, but it prevents wage theft when hours are actually tracked in a transparent way and it's not happening in a lot of other factories. And also certification requires paid leave. But here's the weird thing. Brands like Pact pay a premium that is about one to 10% additional cost for garments made in a fair trade factory. Basically they're paying this surcharge for the privilege of working with a fair trade factory, right? Each factory democratically elects a worker committee. They meet multiple times annually to democratically decide how to invest this extra surcharge money. It could be an income bonus or it could be used for community investment. And these investments, these community investments are based on needs assessments that are conducted as part of the factory audit process. So for example, workers at a rug factory in India chose to invest that surcharge money in bicycles, which dramatically reduce their, their commute time and improve their quality of life. So the workers may not see that money go into their pockets, but it may end up improving their lives in other ways. However, just want to call this out, the range of that like surcharge bonus money is one to 10% of the cost. And that's not really that much unless it's always 10%. Because remember, clothes are cheap to make in mass quantities overseas. So let's work backwards here. And this won't be precise, but I just want to give you an idea of how much of this surcharge money is being made, right? Let's do this exercise with a $50 long sleeve t-shirt from the packed site. So I'm getting out my calculator here. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Which by the way, is a special Texas Instruments model called 
the profit manager that has a lot of shortcuts for calculating margin and price. It's amazing when you're in meetings with vendors. I don't know if I'll ever be a buyer again, but I sure do like to save a whole lot of button pushing. And part of that is because I have a lot of inflammation in my joints and tendons from COVID. It's like lingering, it's better, but it's still there. So sometimes using my phone or calculator is like arduous, like I break a sweat because it hurts. So I'm all about the profit manager more than ever. It's on its last leg. So if you ever see one out there in the wild for sale, please, please contact me. It's my favorite calculator of my life, (laughs) a life filled with calculators. Anyway, I digress. Let's start this by pretending that Pact is taking a similar markup to Christy Dawn, so about three times. Once again, this shirt, the retail price on the site is $50. So that makes it cost about $17 when all is said and done. That would include the shipping, duty, and that fair trade upcharge. So duty on a 100% cotton shirt from India, which it seems like is maybe where they're doing a lot of their manufacturing, There's not a lot of transparency into that. So that duty from India is 15%. So that's $2.55 because the duty is a percentage of the cost. Remember that it's not a percentage of the retail. And let's just subtract another 25 cents for shipping because we'll assume that PAC did the right thing by shipping via boat instead of air. They don't speak to that either though. So who knows? So now we're at $14. If Pact is paying the upcharge on the high end, that 10%, then that's $1.40 per garment, which is not bad. But if it's on the low end at 1%, well, that's 14 cents. And that's just not that much. 1,000 units later, that's only $140 going into that like pot of surcharge money for the worker committee to share, right? Once again, this is not precise or perfect math because there's a whole other lot of variables in there. And I'm sure all my friends who work in production will have a lot of thoughts about this, but this was a simple way of unpacking it. And to be honest, this version I'm telling you is probably a higher dollar amount for that surcharge than actually would be there. Because once again, I'm doing this like all backwards. So... It's also important to remind you that there is a lot of like corruption and weird middlemen, strange fake businesses, unnecessary fees along the way in the fair trade org, which we've talked about in previous episodes. These fees and middlemen take away almost all of that money, right? So ultimately that worker committee is probably ending up with a lot less. So once again, does PACT know this? I don't know. So I can't say that they're knowingly greenwashing or just hoping for the best. And to be clear, they can sell an organic cotton t-shirt at a decent markup for only $50 because they are making them overseas. Like no factory here in the U.S. could do it that cheaply, even if they were paying the minimum wage. That same shirt would have to retail for $70 to $80 unless the brand opted to make a smaller markup. And once again... The brand needs that markup to pay all of the other bills. It doesn't mean they're making just like, you know, a whole pile like Scrooge McDuck vault full of gold off of it, right? Now, I'm not saying that companies shouldn't make things overseas because whether we like it or not, we live in a globalized economy. 
And as I've mentioned time and time again, millions of garment workers and other manufacturing workers all over the world rely on us buying stuff. So I'm not attacking PAC's choice to make things overseas, but once again, it's automatically a lot, like a lot cheaper. And the transparency isn't, well, as transparent. They're relying on audits and weird middlemen and all kinds of other stuff to ensure that factories are paying workers fairly. Once again, what does that word fairly even mean? And that the workers are working under good conditions. And that's an incredibly flawed, corrupt process. Like you can literally pay off an inspector to give you a passing score or that one day when you know the inspector's coming, you make everything great, right? You clean the bathrooms. Everybody wears clean uniforms. You only bring in the happiest employees, right? And furthermore, these workers are not being paid a living wage. I have to say that again. These workers are not being paid a living wage. They're being paid the legal minimum wage for the country. And then maybe They'll get a bonus out of that like surcharge money, but they may also get bikes or they may get nothing. And also, just as I was about to record, Rita sent me a screenshot showing that Pact is offering $9 panties. $9, guys. So I went back to their site and they are literally having doorbusters for Black Friday, like $19 leggings and whatnot. I mean, this is very dangerously veering into fast fashion territory. First off, just want to say, if you truly believe in sustainability as a brand, then you also do not think customers should be buying tons of shit from you. Why? Because that's not sustainable. So doorbusters feed into that buy, 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 don't think about it, just keep buying more and more stuff mentality, which is totally not sustainable. And if we look at it from a, like, how did workers get paid kind of standpoint, I'm wondering what's going on here. Even if this was all these doorbusters were made of extra sort of dead stock fabric that we like to call liability fabric in the industry, basically we made it, bought it for something else. That style got dropped for whatever reason. Maybe it didn't fit. Maybe we had to cancel receipts. Now we're going to use that fabric for this other thing. It feels like a bargain to a certain extent because you're just blazing through this fabric that you already paid for, but it doesn't leave a lot to pay the workers even then. Like when we talk about $19 leggings and that's not the cheapest thing they're selling as a doorbuster, right? We've got those $9 panties. Once again, they wouldn't be able to do this doorbuster, cheap doorbuster thing remotely ethically here in the U.S. So they're making a choice to keep their prices low by working overseas. I would love to hear what their warehouse workers here in the U.S. are making to pack all these doorbusters because that's not something they mention on their site. And I feel like even the biggest novice in the world of sustainability thinks about the garment workers, talks about the garment workers. But we all forget often about the warehouse workers and the retail workers who are also not getting benefits, not being paid a living wage, and working under some sketchy conditions. I guess overall, I would call this kind of marketing ethical washing. Maybe there's a shorter, catchier moniker for it, but that's what I'm calling it right now. Like, yeah, they're also greenwashing, but they are definitely creating a somewhat inaccurate narrative around fair trade and worker pay slash treatment. 
Who amongst all of you wants to ask them on Instagram just how much their lowest paid worker in the supply chain and domestically is being paid? Because that's the real way to get to the truth. Thanks for calling Rita, riling me all up. (laughs) And I hope I answered your question thoroughly, but if not, feel free to call back for a follow-up. If you have a question, comment, story to share with me, please call the Close Horse Hotline. It's fun. It's easy. It's really just a voicemail. (laughs) 717-925-7417. Seriously, I get so excited every time I get a notification that there's a message. It's the best. I love the hotline. Okay, speaking of the hotline, Sarah of Wide-Eyed Vintage is good friends with Selena Sanders. She called the hotline a few weeks ago and left a really interesting message about shopping, why we buy, etc. So I called her back and recorded our conversation. Now, we talked for almost two hours and I edited it down to 30 minutes. It was hard, <laughs> but there's so much to think about here. I'll warn you. The sound quality is a little bit different than you're used to because, you know, we were literally talking on the phone. You want to, like, introduce yourself again? Yes. Well, thank I I felt like when I left you that message and then, of course, like, I was rambling so much I got cut off (laughs) that I was like, (laughs) okay, I hope some of this makes sense. But um, so my name is Sarah Dreer. Um, I own the vintage shop Wide-Eyed Vintage. I also work full-time as a fashion designer for a mass retail, which I think you and I have talked a little bit about back and forth on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I've actually been with them for 14 years. So um, wow. I'm a little bit of a lifer. It was, um, I, I was recruited right out of college and came to Minneapolis thinking, oh, be here for five years. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I just kind of got sucked in. So um, I uh, grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, you know, started thrifting actually at a really young age and then um, went to school in Savannah, Georgia at the Savannah College of Art and Design. And obviously all of those things have kind of molded me to today. I have two kids and a husband and a couple pets. um, (laughs) And that's kind of like the brief footnotes of me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you, you called me and you, well, you called the clothes horse hotline and you yeah. left a message, which I thought was really interesting. And you were like, actually, it might be better for us to talk about this in person. <laughs> yeah. So I, you brought up some ideas that are really interesting to me and something I think about a lot. And actually I, around the time you called was working on recording what will be a series of episodes about the psychology of why we buy stuff basically. Uh, and your stuff played, what you said played right into it. So yeah. why don't you elaborate? Ironically, I had a, a, my therapist appointment today and was, you know, some of these things ha- have really affected my adult life in somewhat of a, I don't want to say traumatic because I think that's an extreme word, but you know, in a negative way. So my name is Sarah. I'm addicted to shopping. I have been probably for <laughs> 20 plus years. Um, and by shopping, I, it's, it's excessive, you know, for the longest time, it was maxing out credit cards on the most, the silliest new, you know, the newest stuff from the best stores. Um, mm-hmm. 
And now that I'm, you know, almost 40, I'm spending some time like self-reflecting and like, I I also carry an immense amount of insecurities, um, you know, through every relationship, even my job, I've been there 14 years and I still am like, am I doing a good job? So I, I was thinking about this the other day and I was like, where, where did this stem from? Why am I so obsessed with hitting the thrift store like every day and you know why does the anxiety build up like getting there and like am I going to get that piece I want or did someone get there before me and I was thinking back about when you know my kind of obsession with consumerism or shopping kind of started and I think it kind of started in middle school I I'm I am a creative by nature Um, I almost majored in sculpture design actually for me what I wore was always and for many people what I wore was always kind of an outward reflection of my creativity oh 100 Um, 100%. right I think I think that that's you know everybody who's into any sort of fashion that that's how they 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 wear it on their sleeve literally and figuratively (laughs) um I was again just kind of reflecting on my high school years and I will give like kind of like so, you know, when you do, you do your yearbook and your senior year, they always choose like class clown or, you know, whatever. Um, I was selected as most changed. And it's funny because I was selected along with this guy that I've known since like kindergarten who has always been this quiet, timid guy. And he had, he was selected most changed, but his was truly like a, he evolved into a more social <laughs> grown up kid versus like what he was. Whereas I one most changed because every year of high school, I was associating myself with a different stereotype group of people. Interesting. I mean, I, I think that's pretty common, right? You don't think so? No, I think it is. I, I, I look at myself and those who are around me and I feel like I was the extreme, so extreme. You know, freshman year, I was hanging out with the cheerleaders and I tried out for cheerleading and I was coloring coloring sheets to hang on the basketball players' lockers and <laughs> and my, my best friend had shopped, she would shop at Abercrombie and always, her mom would always get her like, you know, spend a good $500 at the beginning of the school year, which we could never afford to do. Oh, so, yeah. My family right? either. Yeah. I was like, yeah. dude, I would never be a real part of that group, you know? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, sophomore year, I, I shifted into the, like, I was hanging out with the hippie crowd. I was, Oh. Shopping at a store. I was shopping at a store called Sunshine Daydream and wearing hemp necklaces with glass blown beads and um, rope sandals. And, you know, I got into Dave Matthews band. And oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that and was like, it's interesting because so far you're already checking the boxes uh-huh. of the groups that were at my school also. And I grew up in Pennsylvania. So I feel like I'm enjoying this because it's really like a march down memory lane for me, and it kind of shows oh, the universal experience of being a teenager, I think. Yeah. At least when we were teenagers, the groups are different now, and it's a lot more complicated. I learned this from my daughter. Like, social media has made everything yep. weird. But I'm like, yeah, I can picture the hippie people. We had a yep. hippie stand in our mall. But it was like a, it's not like what you think of, like, with kiosks and malls now. I mean, it was, like, huge. It had, like, the footprint of a store. It just happened to be in the middle of the walkway of the mall. And they had all the hemp necklaces and yes. the skirts that had the little bells on the drawstring. Yes. I mean, I I know this look way too well. Yeah. Well, and with 
with these like transitions of like my image, I was transitioning groups of friends and the boyfriends mm-hmm. I was dating and the places I was working. I've worked retail since I was 15 years old. I would shift the stores I worked at even to fit this kind of image. Junior year, I started hanging out with the raver crowd. Yeah, I, I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the the group oh gosh, I dated this boy who did really good graffiti art and then he gave me like a, I don't even know what you call it, like a, a graffiti nickname, which I look back now and I'm like, I don't think that that was a very nice name, but um, <laughs> I, you know, I started, you know, going to raves and totally dressing the part because I mean, I, I love a good theme party and, and that started <laughs> definitely in this era. It's like definitely mm-hmm. in this era of my life. So it was like head to toe had to be outfitted the way that the other, like, experienced ravers were. I started working at a skateboard shop in our mall where we sold kickwear jeans. And, um, like, I bought some shoes from Hot Topic that had clear bottoms, and there was, like, a little opening at the back that you would, like, unplug and and set a glow stick in there. (laughs) 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 The most novel, you know. So, and again, again, it was another shift to a group of people. I can't, there wasn't really a, a strong mainstay of even friendship through the course of those years. I obviously have a couple really good high school friends that, you know, we started to kind of become close in, in those like sophomore, junior years of high school. But, um, and then, you know, senior year, I kind of shifted into still pretty like edgy alternate. Like I was a little edgy, or I guess you could say, and slipped into like the Empire Records, you know, like, Although this was like post that, this was in early, really early 2000, like actual 2000, 2001 probably. And I was wearing band t-shirts and plaid shirts and, and that was kind of my image then. And that's when I met my now husband and he was the lead singer in a punk band. I build my life around this, these stories I create for myself. But <laughs> to your, to your point about like everybody going through this, I thought back to like where my addiction now came from. Um, and I'm like, I had to buy all new wardrobes to kind of fit into these images. Um, Mm -hmm. and obviously that continued up and through college and I was majoring in fashion design. So you're always trying to keep up with the Joneses in terms of like the, the, Mm -hmm. you know, what designer are you wearing and all of that. And I was a proud non outfit repeater. I was, constantly I, I look back on that now and I'm like oh my gosh I did so much damage but I would not wear things on repeat and sometimes only once and then you know move on and I you know I've carried so much of this now into my adult life I was even thinking a little bit about my business because you know I justify a lot of my shopping now around like well, I can sell this or I can sell this and oh I've seen mm-hmm. I've seen this shop sell you know, like 90s sweatshirts with silly logos or, um, like I found like a Tasmanian devil (laughs) t-shirt and I was like, yeah, this would be so cool. And then I, 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 I thought about that today, even on the call with my therapist. And I was like, that is not the image of my shop. You don't look at it and go like, Oh yeah, I expect to see this from you. And so, you know, I think obviously in my school days, it was like the comparison of those around you or how do you fit in with the right group to like now it's like we're doing it all on social media. And like I'm looking at all these shops or influencers that I admire so much. (laughs) Again, it's another like I want to fit in. I want to be. No, totally. And I think it's even more complicated because like 
it's you can get all these likes and so you get to be yes. even more I don't know it's like I'm not verbalizing this very well but like it's the the vibe of the feeling of being in the in crowd is like times 100 with every like that you get the you adrenaline know? oh yeah my God. yeah Oh, it's, it's kind of sick. But yeah, if I get a comment or a, a message or anything, I, my adrenaline just is like, ah! <laughs> it just starts to go and I'm amped. Yeah. But the come, the come down off of those is really hard. Like, I, you know, I think just like everybody, whether they want to admit it or not, I battle my own mental health issues and I, I try to be super open about that. It can be so tormenting. Um, those kind of, you know, that validation that you seek through um, social media too. And sometimes I'm like, I'm too old to be caring this much about, right? <laughs> I am, I mean, I'm pretty molded into the person I'm supposed to be now, but. I mean, I get that though, because I feel like that's the kind of thing we're told, like you're going to reach some magical age where you don't care anymore. And I kept waiting for that to happen, <laughs> you know, and yep. I will say that like, as I've gotten older, I am starting to be like, yeah, fuck what everybody else thinks. Like, this is who I am. Yeah. I'm going to be really loud and proud about it. Like, you know, and I'm, I feel like working in the industry makes it harder to feel comfortable with who you are. I feel like this is a recurring theme with everybody I talk to who is like, you know, has worked in the industry for a while, especially when you get to people like us who've worked there 10, 15 years, it's like, it doesn't go away. Being where I am now, I look back at the people who were in leadership roles in the buying org when I was just starting. And I realize now that they were feeling the same stuff I was feeling. It doesn't go away. I know. I think, I think it's, it's really hard. I think for me, you know, it's something I talk about a lot on the podcast is that I had a lot of shame of growing up poor. It made me feel like an outsider. The industry yeah. is very classist anyway. And one of the best things that came out of losing my job this year is I could be like, actually, this is who I am. And I'm like double badass because I forced my way into this career. <laughs> you know? yep. uh, but yep. I, I think I really love what you're saying here because I think that this idea of buying more stuff all the time is so complicated and it's so wrapped up in our psyche. It's really it's a really hard behavior to change. I don't, yes. I, I don't know how you do it. It feels paralyzing sometimes. It becomes like the adrenaline, the drive to the thrift store, the, the thinking about who's, is someone going to get there before me and get the piece that I want or whatever. And then, and then the come home and my husband's like, you got to stop spending. And then I feel like the low. So it's like the extreme high, the extreme low of that feeling. And I just look back and I'm like, why, why do I need that to feel fulfilled? I get it. I get it. I feel, you know, it's interesting you talking about how you were in high school kind of getting a whole new wardrobe with every change of who you were. And I, I kind of remained pretty consistent in terms of my identity in high school, but I was still obsessed with like having kind of, like you were saying, not being a proud outfit repeater, you know? And so yeah. I would go to the thrift store because this is like the golden era of thrift stores every mm -hmm. single week when I got my paycheck. And I would come out with a cart of stuff like every single time. And so it reinforced that addiction to buying yes. just in a different way. I think that 
it's it's great to hear you bring up thrifting as a part of that because I think that a lot of people don't get that. That when we talk about addiction to shopping, of to buying, to having new things, we think about it as like going to the mall and racking up a thousand dollars with a credit card debt or I had a friend who was buying stuff from Guilt Group. Remember Guilt Group? Yes. <laughs> I don't think they're I around anymore. Oh my gosh, yes, I have a lamb, a Gwen Stefani lamb bag from there. I think yeah, oh my god, that is from there, yes. yes. That is so of that time. So I had a friend in that era who was literally getting a package from Guilt every day. And I was like, that's shopping addiction. But how was yes. that any different than me going to the thrift store? three times a week. It wasn't, you know? And so, I mean, I'm working through all this stuff on my own as well, you know? So I empathize yeah. with all of this and I'm like, how do we break the habit? You know, I think for me, it's been good to have to kind of be forced to be home for months on end yes, and kind of be like, okay, it turns out there are other things I can do to make myself happy. You said exactly what I was thinking. Like there is this kind of like psychological, like, I don't know, little sits on my shoulders like the thrift store is okay because everything is cheaper it's you know you, you're doing good because I, there's a local small thrift store here that is a nonprofit that that's really good in our community you know I'm sitting here going oh I really want to buy this really expensive thing or I want to buy plane tickets for the spring so we can go on the trip and we're like we don't have that kind of cash but then I go drop $200 at the thrift store but it, I, I don't even think twice about it because it's it's a thrift store. The psychological component of the thrift shopping that can be destructive is that feeling about it. Like it's cheaper, yeah. it's a good cause and like it's it's different. This stuff is special. I'll never see it again. Like these are all the things I go through every time I thrift and I unfortunately also have a husband and a daughter who are similarly addicted to thrifting. Yes. Kind of too. <laughs> I have now I have to be that person who's like, Do you need it? Do we really yep. need it? leave it for someone else, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. Really, really hard. One thing I'm working through with my therapist is I am drowning in stuff in my own home. I'm drowning in my own home. Like I'm borderline hoarder at this point. The thrill of buying this at the store is a huge juxtaposition of the feeling I have at home. I, I don't even know where to start in organizing something or I get overwhelmed. I don't, I don't want to fold my laundry because I have nowhere to put anything else. Oh, man. So, I mean, I know that feeling. I've definitely been there. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I have a, an amazing support group right now. I have I have friends and I have therapists and I have I have you, which I, I was thinking when I was going to get on the call, I was like, this is going to feel like a little bit of a second therapy session today. <laughs> By all means, I will take them off. And I don't think I really considered it like a real problem until the last few years. But um, I think the other thing I want to mention is like, I, we did not have a lot of money growing up either, which I know you've shared a lot about on the podcast. And so I was actually talking to my sister the other day. I was like, where did we buy clothes? Like, where did we get our clothes growing up? Because I say that I had to change my wardrobe every year in high school, but I I couldn't have because I couldn't afford that. So, you know, and my parents didn't do the like back to school, big shopping trip. It was truly like when you needed it. I remember Mm -hmm. my, um, the most exciting time of year for me was my grandmother who was a fabulous woman and had amazing style would take us we'd go visit her in Arizona um they were they were snowbirds so they had an Arizona house we'd go every spring break and she would take each one of us out to buy us a new outfit 
And like one time I bought an outfit from Banana Republic when mm-hmm. and I heard you mention this one time. I know, real fancy. And I heard you mention this one time on the podcast too. This was when Banana Republic was like the real safari, like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, so crazy. I got like, yes, I got like this linen sweater vest that buttoned up the front with Whoa. like a, a <laughs> and these like rayon skirt short that had like, yeah, like that banana leaf print or like some sort of like nod to, nod to safari or, you know, tropical kind of thing. And I, I definitely got my school, I wore knee highs with it, and I definitely got my school photo taken in that outfit. I mean, that sounds good. That it sounds really <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> but that was like, you know, my, my dad worked for Venture. I, I don't know if you ever had a Venture near you. or <gasps> Yeah, okay. Well, I uh, lived in Chicago for a few years after yes. school. Yes, okay. And yes. uh, just like, a, like three, four, maybe four years. And uh, I remember there was a Venture out, I mean, it was like outside the out, outskirts of the city, like somewhere like Schaumburg yep. or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was very much in line with Kmart, Walmart, all of it. Totally. And, and, totally. and their, their headquarters was in um, O'Fallon, Missouri, which was the town over from where we grew up. And um, my dad worked there my whole time from when I was born all the way through high school. And so obviously we would dress in clothes from Venture, but again, it mm-hmm. was very, very generic. And at that time when, I mean, I think brands are always really important. I think, I think people are moving away from like the image a little bit more now of wearing a brand like Abercrombie or, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. But that was the time when, yeah, you know, my friends were were wearing Abercrombie and I was shopping at Venture or wearing my grandma's outfits or thrifting. And, and again, back to then, there was this amazing thrift store where everything was like a quarter. So mm-hmm. like, and obviously that's not the case anymore, but I was trying really hard to like do this on a budget, but there were times when I couldn't. And that's when, I mean, I vividly remember stealing my dad's credit card. He knows about this now. So if he ever hears this for some <laughs> reason, um, and buying like a whole new set of clothes from Gadzooks. I don't know if you remember Gadzooks. Oh my gosh, I sure do. <laughs> so, um, and then I, I think at the same time I was working at Contempo Casuals, now Wet Seal, now oh, Rest in Peace. Yeah. Yep. And obviously Contempo Casuals, this was when it was like cool, like not mm-hmm. as Oh yeah, no. Fashion. Yeah. I mean, Contempo and, Casual was like one of the coolest places for I a while loved, there. I, yeah. I worked there during the kind of resurgence of the bohemian, like and I remember the soundtrack we listened to had like Afternoon Delight, <laughs> all those like 70s songs. And we sold like Bell's bottom jeans with, you know, the embroidered flowers down the side. Oh, and I totally and all that. remember this time. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, all of these shops that we worked at have molded us by in some form or another. But um, I just, you know, and again, I would I would repeatedly take my dad's credit card or have the numbers memorized and and. <gasps> charge up stuff and all through college I would get myself into debt and my my god my I'm very fortunate I had parents who were very supportive and and helped us out a lot and there was a couple times when he bailed me out and I look back on that and I'm like oh my god I I'm so ashamed of those moments especially because it's definitely changed the perception of my family and what they think of you know us and what we spend money on and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so I you know that that's I think that that's where like my 
wardrobe would come from because I could, we couldn't afford that. Like I was babysitting yeah. or, or working a job and getting a discount at that store, but we couldn't afford to like replenish my wardrobe to match my friend group every <laughs> yeah I mean this is this is really setting a lot of like gears in motion in my mind and I'm thinking a lot about how you know by the time I got to high school I mean I already knew in junior high that I was never going to get to have the clothes that like the popular kids had because like in junior high it was like express which makes yeah. me laugh now thinking about how uncool Express is now. And yep. it was like, I yes. Too. <laughs> oh, so there you go. Yes. And Esprit, like all yeah. those brands, you, you know, it was like that time. Uh, and I knew, I mean, my mom wasn't going to buy me that stuff when I was in junior high. We couldn't afford it. And sometimes my grandma would get me Esprit clothes at yard sales and I would wear them until they like turned into dust. So I still have like a really fond, fond attachment to Esprit. It was like the only designer yeah. clothes I got to have. Um, but by the time I got to high school, I was like, yeah, I'm like never going to fit in with these people. And I think, I mean, who knows? I've always been a weirdo anyway, but I do feel like that pushed me harder into like, I'm going to be the weird alternative, yeah, strange kid with all the thrift store clothes. Cause it was just like, this is my identity now. I can be the best version of myself with my budget. And I, I don't know there's no disappointment there for me. But yet, yeah, I, I think, still am buying a new outfit like every other day. Yes, I feel like that's what got that's where I ended up like senior year of high school was like I was I was only thrifting. I was wearing vintage T-shirts that you know were anything from like the YMCA camp T-shirt to a cool <laughs> band T-shirt, and then yeah, like plaid skirts I'd find at the thrift stores and stuff. So like that to your point, like I I was able to kind of depending on the group I fell into, you could totally fake it till you made, you know you didn't have to buy the mm. the name brand stores at the mall but it still totally fueled my obsession with consuming you know I have a senior she was my senior director at my my daytime job and she was it was a mass retailer and she was so her her style is amazing she has like the, the really short Betty Page bangs black hair she was wearing like you know hot the tallest platform like both chill, hot topic esque style for the environment that we worked in. And so I always admired her so much. I was like, this is who she is. She's not wearing a three piece suit because that's what they say we should wear. Um, <laughs> and she said to me the other day, because we were talking a little bit about this too, like our insecurities, even in our adult years. And she said, you know, I spent my 30s worrying so much about what people thought about me. And once my 40s roll around, the further you get into your 40s, the less you start to care. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've never been so excited to be 40. I know. I know. That's so encouraging. Because I remember someone telling me, it was the strangest thing, but I was in the, like, kitchen in my office, and I was just about to turn 30. I can remember this so clearly. And this woman, who I swear I never saw around the office ever again, who was definitely older, I would say she may have even been in her 40s or 50s, she... uh which is not to say that 40s or 50s are older, but older than me at the time. Yeah. And she said to me, how old are you? And I said, oh, I'm going to turn 30 in a couple of weeks. And she was like, you know what? Turning 30 was the best thing that ever happened to me because I started to realize that I didn't care what anyone thought. And she's like, I'm excited for you. She's like, I, congratulations on getting ready to turn a corner. And yeah. I, that stuck with me. And I turned 30 and I did feel more confident, but I still felt like just that imposter syndrome, man. It's like, all around you all the time, yes. right? And 
I was like, by the time I was 35, I'm like, I think that woman was full of shit. But now maybe maybe you're making me feel that there's hope on the horizon. <laughs> oh, I I hope. I mean, I I I mean, gosh, I need something to look forward to. So I am holding, <laughs> my fingers are crossed, and I'm holding out hope for that. The other thing that like made me reflect on this, like, why did I want to transition groups of people? Why did I care so much? And I, you know, through my my experiences working for, uh, you know, corporate America, we we do a lot of those like strength finders and Myers Briggs and, oh, and those yeah. kind of like personality tests that really, you know, help you know who you'd be best working with or whatever. But my strength finder is I'm a woo, and I think I'm a woo and I'm a relator. And so I look back and I'm like, this this shit started when I was in middle school. Like, yeah, I, I wanted. I wanted to woo my friends. I wanted to, I wanted to feel cool. I want, so that's why I would like change my outfits to fit in with the crowd. Um, you know, I, I def, this definitely like transitioned into my like dating life too, where I was like definitely cycling through boyfriends. It dug deeper than the clothes for me. It, it went down to like my intimate relationships and, God, I even now I, I'm working through some of that with my, my therapist too. I'm like, and I'm like, this all stems from all of this. This all stems from me needing acceptance from the people around me or me trying to please those around me or me trying to find a way to relate to. I I always try and find that way to relate to somebody, even if it's like, oh, my my grandpa used to work in Kansas City. I'm like, oh, I was born in Kansas City. And they're like, what part? And I'm like, Overland Park. But I moved six months after I was born. Like, I always am just finding that way to. Yeah, yeah. I, I Grasping at straws, you know? Yeah, totally. I totally understand that. Yeah, I mean, I think, once again, it's like why we buy stuff and our behavior and feelings about buying are wrapped up in so much stuff that goes way back. Like, for me, I feel like my love of, like, shopping as this, like, activity that would bring me great joy and even like a sense of camaraderie it started with my grandma when I was a kid because she would take me shopping all the time and it'd be like the most fun thing ever and get like the head to toe outfit and like go out for lunch and she would pick me up early from school to take me shopping I mean like she loved shopping in the same way and she like passed it on to me you know yes mine too now, I wish I would have gotten my other grandma. My other grandma lived through the Depression, and, like, for Christmas, I would get jars of jelly. Like, it's just, like, very <laughs> I know. Much- oh, my gosh. Like, sometimes I'm, like, I agree. I'm, like, I really wish I had one of those Depression-era grandmas who would, like, yes. show me how to be thrifty instead of, like, taking me shopping and out for lunch yep. all the time, you know? <laughs> Yeah, oh my, this grandma, like, definitely ironed wrapping paper and, and, like, gave See, we need more of that. Yes. We need more our, of that. <laughs> our, gifts for, our gifts from them were always savings funds, which obviously is, like, a wonderfully generous gift. But when yeah. I was a kid, I was like, I was like, oh, man, I got another one of these, like, $100 checks that I can't even do anything with. This is so dumb. <laughs> so, like... Which, again, sounds so awful now. Obviously, it was wonderful when I turned 18 and could use those for college and stuff. But Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I was, again, so obsessed with, like, having a cool thing that could somehow connect me on a social level or impress those around me. And, again, I still do it today. We, you know, and I know your work experience, too. We We worked in an environment where you're kind of expected to look cool. 
you know? Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah, to show the image of, like, what you work on or the brand you work for or whatever. Totally. Well, there's that whole idea of um, cultural fit, you know, which I've been wanting to talk about on the show, this idea that, like, you have to be a cultural fit to work there. And it's it's not about you having the same ethos as the company, because in most cases that would mean that you would just, like – I don't really care about anything but making a profit, right? That's not the culture that they're asking for. Yes. It's like it's like the look, the aesthetic. Yes. Having the right brand of clothes, the right clothes, the right hair, getting your nails done, you know, mm-hmm. the whole rigmarole all the time. Listening to the right yep. music, doing the right stuff in your free time. And that's what we really talk about when we talk about cultural fit. But I think it forces you to become like the ultimate consumer. Yes, it absolutely does in every facet of your life, not just clothes, you know, like you were mm-hmm. just saying. It's it's about your car. It's about the CDs you're buying. It's, you know, it's totally yeah, it's everything. where you live, you know, the kind of yeah. furniture you have. And then yeah. in the, like with the, the rise of social media, like your Instagram better reflect that culture as well. Oh, my you God. Know? I can't even tell you how many, yeah, I can't even tell you how many times I've like taken a picture of my fiddly fig in my front room and I'm like I'm like I'm gonna post this really great plant picture like everyone else and I delete it over and over again because I'm like this does not does not fit the fiddle's image thank you so much Sarah for taking hours literally hours to talk to me I've been thinking about our conversation nonstop, like all of the psychological reasons we shop how shopping is so wrapped up in our psyches it's like yes We all want to be better consumers. We want to live a more sustainable life. But for a lot of us, it's a lot more complicated than just buying less package and composting. There's a lot to unpack and sort of repack. I would love to hear from all of you about your own relationship with shopping. You can call the hotline or you can email me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. I see this as a long running dialogue that we can all have. We're sort of here to support and enlighten one another. I want to wow you with one more fact before we get back into my conversation with Jillian. Currently, the 12% of the world's population that lives in North America and Western Europe accounts for 60% of total global consumer spending. So 12% of the world's population accounting for 60% of the spending. Meanwhile, the one third of the total global population that lives in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for only 3.2% of consumer spending. In other words, we are buying some stuff, all right? Furthermore, 93% of teenage girls surveyed said that shopping was a, quote, interest or hobby. And to be fair, I've seen that on some dating apps over the years. So it's not just the kids who love to spend some money. As you're probably beginning to see, our relationship with shopping, with clothing, with experiences, with social media, with being a foodie, it's all so complicated and so tangled up in our brains. We're all going to have to work together to support one another as we try to change our ways. I think the idea of sustainable fashion has allowed us to think we can continue to shop till we drop without 
hurting the planet. But as I'm always lecturing you, I mean, that's just not true. We all have some hard work to do. of small businesses have closed this year thanks to COVID. So it's more important than ever that we focus our money and attention and support on the small businesses out there that are doing things the right way and really rethinking our relationship with the stuff we own. So let's talk about another one of our Pegasus sponsors, which is a small business, Shift Clothing. You already know, if you've been listening to the intros to our episodes, and I hope you are, that Shift is based in beautiful Astoria, Oregon, which is truly a magical place that makes me so homesick for the Pacific Northwest. And Shift is run by our friend, Becky. She focuses on making and selling clothes that work for a large variety of bodies, but mostly fat bodies, an incredibly underserved part of our population. She keeps the shape simple but interesting, and she picks the absolutely correct fabric for the design. If you've been listening to Close Horse long enough, then you know that the fabric is a big deal because it affects how a garment fits, feels, and, well, lives, like the lifespan of the garment, right? Becky uses only natural fibers, and she sources a lot from canvas and denim suppliers for sturdy, hardworking fabrics. A garment has to be functional to work well in life and feel good in movement to be worth Becky's time to make. Shift was born of the perfect storm of an actual need for plus-size clothing that Becky liked, her underutilized skill set, a desire to be self-employed, and a lifelong fascination with clothing. As a fat person, cool clothes were rarely available to Becky unless her mom or she made them, and it took her a while to realize a lot, and I mean so many, Other people feel the same way. She's been in business about five years. She has a business partner that she shares space and resources with, and he makes the bags that you can see on her site. They're cool. She employs one part-time person, and she's committed to keeping things small and slow, which is the name of the game when it comes to sustainability. Shift is a small woman-owned business, completely self-funded, and committed to making people feel good or at least neutral, about their bodies. Their motto is clothing for the revolution. I love that. (laughs) Becky is working on a new linen and our wool vest coming out early next year. And it's inspired by the one Joe wore in the latest Little Women movie adaptation. But as she says, it might take a while because she really puts the slow in slow fashion. I stalk all of my patrons on Instagram, and I have to tell you that all of Shift's customers love, like all caps love, what they get, and it's reframed how they think about clothing and style. That's what we all need more than ever right now. So check out more on Instagram. I'm personally considering treating myself to a very cool patchwork top at Shift Astoria. Right now, Shift is offering a 10% off discount to all Clothes Horse customers using the discount code Close horse. It can be used for anything on the site, which is shiftwheeler.com. Once again, that's the code close horse for 10% off at shiftwheeler.com. And I'll include that in the show notes. You know how on the internet people will just throw out like these really 
large statements that they think are the cure to an even larger problem. Like it'll be like, oh, workers overseas are paid slave wages. Well, let's just make everything in the U.S. And you're like, oh, it's not that simple, right? Mm, Yeah, exactly. So another one that I see thrown out there is like, you know what we all need to do is we need to embrace minimalism. Mm. And I would title this segment of our conversation, minimalism, not so minimal. (laughs) And I also would subtitle it minimalism, a lifestyle when we need a way of life. Okay. Mm. So I looked up minimalism because I know it's been a trend for so long. I looked it up on Instagram and there are more than 20 million photos tagged with minimalism. Oh, no doubt. I know it's kind of crazy and it's everything is very expensive and aspirational and all of them. The tip of the minimal iceberg. (laughs) Yes. And so you and I were talking about Marie Kondo, who is someone who comes up a lot on this show and not in an unloving way, just Mm -hmm. in a like, wow, we dumb Americans sure do blow it all the time. (laughs) Right. So a lot of economists have been following this uh, condo effect. That's what they Mm -hmm. call it over the last few years. Like, how's that affecting the economy? Because if we truly had said, we are going to live the way of Marie Kondo and we will not acquire things that don't spark joy, right? the economy would take a huge hit. Now, is Mm -hmm. that long-term a problem? No, we need to change the way we spend our money anyway, right? But what really happened is we threw away all of our stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. As you know, and last year when the Marie Kondo show took Netflix by storm, and I want to say that was in January, mm-hmm. by the time spring rolled around thrift stores across the U S saw a huge increase in donations ranging from 40%, which is a pretty substantial growth already, like almost, almost half again, right. To 400%. Uh So that would be four times as much, all depending on location. And, you know, not surprising probably is that the thrift stores near urban areas saw the Mm -hmm. biggest increase. So the stuff closer to 400%. And thrift stores were kind of like, oh, well, you know, we only have so much space. What are we going to do with all this stuff? And, you know, honestly, most of it got shredded. It got sold overseas. It went to the landfill. It met like many of the fates that you've covered on previous episodes in terms of like you know we kind of have this nice idea that when we're donating things that it's like gonna go in one direction but ultimately it's just kind of a longer path to the landfill for much of it right right and I know that Marie Kondo asks people to shed their belongings that don't spark joy but I think we took it a little too to heart and we also I don't know like she didn't mean go throw everything away you know just maybe don't acquire more stuff unless it's special to you. So all this stuff gets wasted. Quarantine rolls around literally a year later, not even that long ago. We should all have Mm -hmm. the learnings of Marie Kondo in our minds. And what happened, fresh, fresh, right? It should be like, we've, we're, it shouldn't have worn off. The glow of Marie Kondo still should have been in the air. Right. Mm -hmm. Everyone realizes, oh shit, I don't have enough stuff around my house to feel comfortable staying home all the time because people went bonkers, okay? They were like, get rid of all the pillows, every extra blanket, some of the furniture. We're just going to have a chair and a coffee table in this room and that's it. And then it was like, oh man, I'm like here all the time. So everybody 
through minimalism out the window. And I've read multiple think pieces about people who were sort of like, you know, I'd really like to go back to that Louis the 14th era of excess. Okay. And <laughs> in, in not so many words, but yes. And everybody went shopping unless you were like myself or Jillian and you lost your job. And then you were like, Oh my God, we have to hold on to everything we have for the rest of time because we might never have anything again. Yeah. But the rest of the people decided to shop until they dropped home goods sales rose 51% overall year over year, meaning a 51% increase from last year during the pandemic, like those early months of quarantine, while basically Every other business out there outside of groceries and toilet paper was just tanking. tanking. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the other thing about that that I just anecdotally have picked up on um, from just talking to different people that I know who either own places or, um, you know, like have a place and they are around the house all the time is that I think there's been a fair amount. I don't know what the statistics, but of like home improvements going on. You mm-hmm. know, people, yeah. It's been like, huge. Yeah. If not doing like full scale work of that type, I think there's been like quite a bit of, um, rejuging, you know, of people's living spaces <laughs> where, and I mean, I, I can totally see, I'm not like faulting anyone for that because I can completely see it. Like, you know, you live a certain way when you're busy and you're like throwing shit here and there. And, you know, it's like, it's home. It is what it is. It's comfortable. But then when you just are in it all the time, what you're really trying to do, I think, is to create a habitat for yourself, you know, like mm-hmm. a real sort of environment that you feel like not only reflects your needs, but also because we are all individuals and we all want to like somehow like put our stamp on things aesthetically. Um, there's that too. And I, I think that kind of harkens back to when we were talking about the millennials and being in your twenties and buying things and like how inevitably everybody sort of like has that moment where they're like, Oh shit. I like, I need a chair. And you end up with like a chair that you know, and this also gets to like clothing in a big way, but you end up with a chair mm-hmm. that's like functional, but not actually like, you know, your platonic ideal of all that a chair can be. Oh, <laughs> so, 100%. I mean, that's called yeah. hashtag Ikea right there. You know, like yeah. nothing at Ikea is exactly what you wanted, but it fills the void much mm-hmm. like fast fashion does. Very totally. much so. Yeah, I think 100%. it's a very, very similar kind of like an impulse that comes about. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not surprising at all to hear that that home goods were something that people really went hard on this year. Yeah, and I think what's interesting to me is that I think minimalism is actually a consumerism story. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah, like, once again, when we see these 20 million tags on Instagram, it's like expensive furniture. It's the Glossier store. It's minimal, but like maximal packaging on beauty products where mm. the, the beauty product is wrapped in cellophane and a box and something else inside, but the text is very minimal, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think... I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about minimalism that I'm going to talk about a little bit here. So first off, I want to talk about minimalism as a classist consumer movement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have this great quote by writer David Stubbs and it is wealthy Westerners still squander obscene amounts of the world's resources, but have found stylish, discreet ways of doing so. 
Poverty, by contrast, is a visibly maximal experience. It is shopping trolleys crammed with wretched but vital belongings, which you have no place to park. And I would say that minimalism is the sexy reaction to fear of hoarding which is a classist mm-hmm. concern. Like you and I were talking about this via text earlier. The people you see on hoarders tend to be poorer. So hoarding is stuck in that same column of like undesirable, quote, poor traits like obesity, bad teeth, bad personal style, hamburger helper, fast food, you name it, right? Yeah. And that reminds me, you know, when I was thinking about that earlier, what it reminded me of, which has always never sat well with me, this is Going back in time a little bit here to the early aughts, the People of Walmart blog, do you remember that? I think it also turned into multiple book series. And it would basically be like, look at all these ridiculous, ugly idiots who shop at Walmart. Mm. And that never really sat well with me because the truth is there are ridiculous people everywhere you go. (laughs) So why why do we have to single out Walmart? Oh, because these people are poor. You know, I would love to see the ridiculous people of Target blog. <laughs> sure. You know, I'd, I'd love to see, um, you know, like ridiculous people of Cap Beauty. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, but also like something that I was thinking about as, as you were saying all of this. And uh, again, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and mention a brand by name that neither of us is affiliated with. And you can always cut it out. Okay. Um, but there was a there was an ad that I have very strong feelings about that I think I've shared with you. In oh the past, yes, um, yes. That came out um, over the summer, I think. Sort of, um, I just remember it kind of hitting at a point when, like, Black Lives Matter was really like swelling to a crescendo, and there was just like so much else at stake. And then I was watching Hulu, and this um, this ad came on. For <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm already laughing. Okay, because I've seen this ad. <laughs> Oh, yeah, and I'm sure listeners have seen this ad and I'm really like, I've got a real bee in my bonnet about it because <laughs> I, you know, I was just trying to watch ghost adventures and like, just you know, live your really life. Like, yeah, I know. Find my, find my bliss, you know, and I was bombarded <laughs> by this ad for a kombucha where it was a, an animated ad. It depicts something of like, you know, a post-apocalyptic desert scape. <laughs> And I think like maybe even maybe even off to the distance, there's like the ruins of a smoking city. And so we've got our <laughs> protagonist. <laughs> our protagonist is a thin blonde woman in like semi, you know, like artfully tattered apocalyptic gear. And she's she's presented with like what seemed to be a series of like refrigerators um they look like and they each have like something to them they each have a name on them and so the first one she goes up to i think is called processed food and she like peeks in the door and in this door she sees it's like it's dark and dim and they're like what can only be described as like you know these monster fat poor people who smell and fart and they're like eating tough ramen <laughs> wait are they and farting i think there's like at least one fart sound <laughs> if, if memory serves me well and so this girl is just like repulsed and like you know like just like shrinks away in horror and then she goes up to another door and like doesn't even open it she like looks through there's like a porthole window 
And inside it's called like blood and guts. And it's these sort of like German expressionist, like machine men who are like, have ta- it's just like fangs and they're like <laughs> eating raw meat. <laughs> and she's so, she's so horrified. She like tumbles back, and like lands on the ground. And then a door like props itself open and like some smooth kind of like, club lounge jazz begins sort of like tinkling out and it's called the living foods door Uh. and so through she steps and she sort of puts her little hand to her mouth like oh what have we here (laughs) she goes in and there's this guy like wearing some sort of like an open chest kimono number with a little man bun and maybe a goatee and like he's he's serving like a mango mama kombucha on a tray and she's like oh and she takes a sip and as she takes a sip the bubble graphic kind of like swings around her skin and gives her just a golden tan (laughs) of course gotta have that tan And then the camera pulls back. You see that she's on some sort of a piazza overlooking a Mediterranean scene. Suddenly she's wearing like a little short tunic and some lace up sandals. And I believe she does like a little warrior one just then and scene. (laughs) Hashtag kombucha. (laughs) And then their tagline is like, find your find your bliss or some shit like that. (laughs) So basically what that commercial is saying is the only way you will find your bliss is by casting off all the gross pores and finding your wellness kombucha friends, you know, like the only way you will be worthy of bliss is if you askew me and you like, don't, you know, fall victim to the perils of, you know, like poor person eating. (laughs) It's just like, I mean, the classism around food, nutrition, wellness, health, like I, that's a whole show right there. I have so many strong feelings about that. Mm. Oh, it's, it's more than a show. It's like its own podcast that never ends. It just goes on and on. It is. It is the porification of weight, you know? I was thinking as you were talking about the sort of the minimalism and everything, um, as opposed to this sort of like fear of being a hoarder and like this, you know, undesirability of being someone who has all this stuff. And then you also mentioned the Louis 15th and you mentioned all this, that kind of gets around to what I was saying earlier about this way in which we fetishize simplicity. And so we look to a culture like Japan and we're like, Oh, look at the Japanese, look how they live. You know, it's so simple. And then we're like, Oh, look how, you know, like the Scandinavians live. It's so simple. But what we're actually weirdly doing is we're like flipping that paradigm where like it used to be that like you would show everyone you were rich by having a lot of stuff, which gets into that kind of like Elvis thing. Like Elvis grew up, you know, in poverty. Mm -hmm. And when he made it, he like he displayed that to everybody by buying pink Cadillacs and fucking, you know, like making a jungle room and like eating crazy shit all the time because he was like, I'm rich, mm-hmm, I'm a rich mm-hmm. man. Like this is what it is to be rich. And then now it's like weirdly like everyone has this idea of like imaginary, like olden timey peasants that we all want to like <laughs> replicate. <laughs> but, like, actually what you're doing is you just like culturally appropriating the aesthetics of like being you know like a poor person in like what you know the 
the 1600s. Like, it's just so weird. Like, I know, I know. I mean, I think you're right there. And there have been so many times, even in my life, where I've seen being poor, oh, being yeah. fetishized. Like, let's talk about yeah, grunge, talk right? About grunge is a fashion trend. Well, let's talk about, like, yeah. like, punk rock. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was just going to say, I recently saw these Gucci tights that are just shredded up pairs of tights, which I have, like, I have a hundred in my closet right now that I could be just selling as Gucci knockoffs, I guess. But the other thing that just never like ceases to tickle my funny bone about punk is that it was just like made up by Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. Yeah, I know. It wasn't like, I know. It wasn't like organically. I mean, organically, there are a lot of young creative people that like come up with ways of dressing but like the sex shop was a shop you know and so it's like yeah I know know that's like really good point it was literally a shop and it's like so it's always funny to me when people like really earnestly cling to like a punk or a metal or, you know, sort of like what now it all seems like it's all kind of like fallen under the umbrella of quote unquote goth, which like it kind of does and it kind of doesn't. And it like, it just is always funny when people are super earnest about that because I'm like, it is funny though. <laughs> like it is. No, like, it is. It is funny. It is funny. Like they called it the great rock and roll swindle for a reason. It was a swindle. Oh my god, I know. <laughs> That's like one of those things that you cannot bring up to people who would identify themselves as punk without possibly getting hit mm-hmm. or at least socially shunned. And you know, one thing I have always loved about the punk community, despite the fact that their aesthetic, in fact, is a consumer trend, <laughs> is that. They are supporters of the make being rich embarrassing again Uh and always have been. And I do appreciate that about them. What is that that one that was always, there would always be like those little joke articles. It's like the onion, but it's like all about. Oh, the hard times. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my husband is a fan. Oh, by the way, he, he, he must've heard us, me talking because he just texted me. Red state version of people of Walmart. That's people of MoMA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like or, I mean, that. honestly, it could also be like people of Whole Foods. Let's. Oh, my God. I know people of Trader Joe's, people of Erewhon. <laughs> <laughs> for real. It's for sure people of Erewhon. <laughs> for, for sure. For sure. Or like people of Heath Ceramics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Wait, have you and I found a new money-making scheme for ourselves where we start all these red state people of blogs so that red states can make fun of liberals and we can rake in all the ad dough or something? The ads we for terrible things, though, like... Oh, man, yeah. Child-sized Yank. guns and... Yankee uh, candles. <laughs> oh, God. I know, I know, I know. Okay, that's the that's the drawback to this plan is that we have to sell our soul to Yankee candles. Uh, to big, <laughs> big candle. <laughs> so, okay, we've established that minimalism is like wealthy, right? It gives you this strange, it's so funny and ironic to be like, okay, well, it's all about these simple peasant ways, but in a really expensive way, right? Well, I mean, that's like kinfolk, right? Oh, is that still around? God, I don't think it is. I think it tanked. I think I think it finally folded. But, but I mean, that was like the apex of it, I feel like. Was oh like my God, the... the hashtag live authentic on Instagram. And it would be like a picture of your breakfast bowl. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? It would be like... I mean, I, I think I, I, without having seen it, I think I might have lived right. it. I think, <laughs> like, I, I think I I think you may have, you may have. But <laughs> yes, I mean, it was everywhere around us. And I do think that that was like 
this more like peasanty, homey, getting back to our roots kind of minimalism. Mm-hmm. But then there, on the other hand, there's that like sleek, quasi modern sort of minimalism. So there's right. there's two tracks you can take there and still seem totally successful well, and there's and- like the whole kind of like dwell magazine and its discontents and then that's basically warmed over mid-century modern you know yeah yeah like yeah. how but- much of my how much of my house can be a window and then how few items can i put inside it <laughs> for like the most money yeah so people can look in and see how much money i spent on my coffee table for real so the other thing i was thinking about when i was thinking about minimalism and how you know fast fashion and what i call fast home goods and fast mm-hmm. makeup and fast furniture have pushed us to buy more and more. It's pushed us into this like crowded corner where we're surrounded by all this stuff that we never really liked that much in the first place. And it gives you, you know, it's nerve wracking. It gives you anxiety. It's scary. And then you have this idea of like, wow, think of all the relief I would get from just cleaning out my whole closet and everything else in here. It's like, this inflammation of being crowded by all your possessions that you don't care about can be soothed with the soothing balm of minimalism, or at least the idea of it. That Well, and that, I, and as you were saying it, all I could think about was binging and purging. Yeah. Oh, which yeah. Which, again, I think, like, gets us into this, like, real analog between our unhealthy relationship with consumerism and our dis- disordered eating, um, because that's how it feels. You know, it's like this thing, and it is a very similar kind of a sensation. Like, when you buy shit and then you have, like, buyer's remorse for the shit, it's kind of like when you, like, eat something that like in a in like a moment you just really craved it and then you like inhale it and it doesn't make it, it could be good it could be like quote unquote good quote unquote bad it doesn't matter what the food is it's just that like that compulsion to like kind of fill your face <laughs> yeah and yeah. then that just feeling of like oh man like if only there were some way i could like undo this thing that i've done you know and like and like any kind of a disordered um, compulsive behavior, like there's more to it than just trying to overcorrect. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, well, I need to throw everything out. I need to throw everything up. And then like, if it was like a food, you'd be like, okay, well, I got to replace it with all these, this clean eating. Or you might even like, if it's food, you might even be like, now I'm going to fast for a day, you know? Cause like yeah. is all the rage. <laughs> oh my God. Or I know. I like drink, what? I've got to drink like 19 bottles of water, you know, whatever it is. Which is also like some maximalism right there, but you're right. Yeah. It's like so extreme. It's like, I either can eat three ice cream sundaes and starve myself for three days or well, that's it. You know, I can only just do a lot in all, it's got to be a pendulum that's constantly swinging. Like, really, really fast. Mm, so yeah. I'm going to throw out all my stuff in February of 2019. And then in February of 2020, buy it all back. Like yeah. what's, what's the middle ground well, there? And there's also that thing too, which I think, um, obviously comes into play when you're dealing with this kind of impulse to be like, do, 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 no, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Stop, 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 go, stop, go. Is there's also that kind of that illusion of like hitting a reset button that I think we find really appealing, like getting a do over, you know, like I think people love a do over in our culture. Yeah. People love yeah. to act like they love to turn a page. Yeah. 
<laughs> they do. I mean, we all do, I'm right? Not, I'm not, I say they, I mean, everybody does. There's something really <laughs> satisfying about this, like, and starting now, you know, like, that is in the past. But the truth is, yeah. it's like, the baggage isn't physical things. And this comes into play when you talk about a show like Hoarders, or you talk about a show like My Strange Addiction. Like, we're all... You know, like we're fundamentally like our psychology is like being manipulated all the time by all of these things that we were acculturated into in a capitalist consumerist society with all these other mm-hmm. <laughs> all these other sort of like sidebar isms <laughs> and akis <laughs> going on. <laughs> you know, sort of like sub bullets. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> so i mean that's ultimately what it comes down to is like the quick fix is never the fix and i think everybody sort of knows that but like people don't like to do that kind of like hard hard work and like it's kind of like the um like remember that donkey that was a bad influence on homer simpson and like every time it came near like (laughs) gesturing towards a cake on a table like hey yes yes i mean i think that's like the the machine this like multi-kazillion dollar with like so much energy and so much focus going into it machine that's trying to sell us things trying to convince us that the answer to whatever makes us feel like less than perfect is going to be buying something somehow even if that thing that you're buying is an experience, that's still a business right there that you're, you're putting money into. And so like, ultimately, like it doesn't serve the donkey for us to like put our hand up to the donkey and look away because like you talk about all the time on your (laughs) show, like unless that happens on such a scale that they start to feel the pinch and they start to really feel themselves losing money, there's nothing incentivizing that donkey, like to stop kicking cakes off of tables. (laughs) Right. And that's also why we don't call this show Closed Donkey. Right. <laughs> and I'm not that we're anti-donkey, but this is a pretty much a donkey-free zone. Right. <laughs> but, I, you know, you're right. You're right. Like, And I, I feel like I need to say this like almost every episode now because I get a lot of messages from people on social media who, you know, follow the Instagram or listen to the pod here and there. And they're always like, what should I do if I think a company is doing bad things? And I'm like, well, listen, feel free to harass them as much as possible on social media to email them. But the reality is most of them do not care. In situations where companies actually have responded to that kind of social media pressure, it is only because they're afraid they're going to lose sales. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason. And some of them are more fearful than of that than others. It's kind of interesting to watch that, like where I've seen like, for example, like talking about the, the hashtag pay up movement, mm-hmm. Gap gave in, right? Gap is huge. And companies that are less big than them have not given in and continue to ignore the constant calls on social media from their followers and customers to pay up. And I think that's really interesting that Gap would be more fearful of losing sales than some of these slightly smaller retailers. I, I don't know. I, the other thing about Gap is they just had that flap, the Gap flap. Um, oh my gosh, the other that day. sweatshirt. The sweatshirt, yeah. I mean, they're just like they can't put a foot right these days. <sighs> I know, I know. I mean, a lot of retailers can't. I would say that. Like, it's really hard yeah. for them to get it to. I don't know why. It's really hard for them to get yeah. it together right now. Well, I think it's because they're super out of touch. And I think they are also 
I think as the the pandemic marches on and it really I mean at this point we're you know we're we've actually we've been really restrained in not talking about the election at all considering this is your first <laughs> post-election guest um I know show but like I mean just being in this like really strange cultural holding pattern that we're all in um I think that like they've already seen what happened the first year of the pandemic I think they're scrambling I think they're probably trying to figure out ways to somehow capitalize on this situation whether that means that we're going to be like drowning in a sea of sweatpants or who knows <laughs> I know. you know like what exactly it's gonna look like I think they are they are scrambling I think I loved when you said that you think that they're out of touch and that's been something that's been on my mind a lot lately that I've been really thinking about because you know I've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes but there's a lot of generational wealth and classism that exists in, within the industry. And when we talk about like big retailers like Gap, I'm just citing Gap as an example, but I can show you any company that is big and may or may not be dealing in fast fashion. I would say Gap is dealing in fast fashion. Absolutely, yeah. The people who work there, who do the buying, the designing, the executives, I'm going to tell you something about them. They're white. Well, they're white. They're white, <laughs> yes. One, they are white. Two, they don't buy Gap clothes, Okay. So they have way more money than that. They're being paid a lot for one. They most often are now coming from a pretty extreme amount of generational wealth. I've seen this shift in the industry over the last 10 to 15 years for sure. And so they may have never even shopped at Gap a day in their lives. And they certainly right. don't like or respect the product that they're selling. Or the customer. And that was what I was going to say. Yes, yeah. yes. That was what was going to come next because they... <laughs> Sorry. No, <laughs> no, it's right. I mean, I'm glad you led me right into that. So they they don't know that customer and they don't respect that customer. That customer to them is data points on a piece of paper. They might do some consumer insights that they talk about where it's like, oh, these people sure do love to go to soccer games or something, you know, but like they they aren't like... They aren't the customers. They don't know the customers. They certainly, if we go to say Old Navy, which is an even more like lower price point, they mm -hmm. look at those customers as people who don't have taste, who aren't sophisticated, who aren't stylish, who right. don't have good taste basically. So they have this feeling that they can kind of sell them anything and they'll buy it. But the reality is if you don't have that kind of respect and understanding of your customer, then how are you, you're going to be out of touch. How are you going to buy what, totally, are you going to yeah. make and buy what they need in their lives? Well, it turns into like a very like paternalistic kind of a thing where they're just like, well, people will like what we tell them to like, which <laughs> is essentially what they think. Yes, yes, because these nimrods who are our customers will take what we give them because we know best. And I've had conversations with my other friends who work in the industry, especially when we, I'm talking to friends who have worked in a more young person focused mm -hmm. demographic. So like, a store that's maybe selling to teenagers, early 20s, college mm -hmm. students, that kind of vibe, is that we have people who are years beyond that age and they're kind of saying like, these kids will buy whatever we sell them. Like, and it's like, it would be embarrassing for them, the buyers, the designers, the executives to ever wear those clothes. And they look down on these kids in their minds as like just stupid idiots who just want to spend their money. And... What I love that I've been seeing more and more, like this year especially, is that 
those consumers, those like teenagers, college students, people in their twenties are like, fuck you. Why are you racist? Why are none of your models people of color? Uh, why do you follow around black people when they come in your store? Um, why do you pay people overseas slave wages? Uh, what's your board of directors like? Like on and on and on. Like I, I love, I love that yeah, because so me too, because the, the people working in the corporate office are like, wait, what? Wait, you, you're asking us? Like, we just didn't think you could think of those thoughts, you know? What it kind of is reminding me of is there was an article that I read, I think it was in The Guardian, um, probably, I mean, it's, it's got to have been like at least like four or five years ago now, but it really stuck with me because it sort of speaks to what you're talking about here in fashion, but it was about how, um, and I think it also deals with like the baby boomer millennial kind of like loggerheads that we're at um mm-hmm. or like i think like the way the baby boomers did things that has really like put millennials at a disadvantage in a, like many ways i can't even get into but then the fact that the sort of quote unquote gen z or like younger millennials are much more like open eyed about like because they haven't been quite as like indoctrinated in the system in quite the same way or they've had so much more access to like information through the internet um to be able to really like get to the heart of some of these questions and to really like dig out like how like toxic so many of these things are. Mm-hmm. But this article um, really gave me a lot of food for thought because it was about how in the UK, because The Guardian is a British newspaper, I think during like the 50s and the 60s, there were actually like a lot of post-war government programs that were going on that were doing things like um, creating avenues where like working class kids could attend art school and do all these things. Like one example that they gave that was like cited throughout the article was Brian Ferry because yeah, from Roxy Music, he was essentially like, I think his father like worked in a coal mine or something like a very kind of classic, like early mid 20th century, very working class kind of a, a career path in the UK and not a lot of mobility because of the way the class system is there. And so he was able to go to art school and then he ha- he was able to like express himself and do all these things and have this career that made him a lot of money, but that then how his son is like you know, he's just like a fucking upper class twit, essentially. <laughs> like, it's just the thing of like, how upper, like how generational wealth sort of like, um, I don't know, like, it was just like, it was giving examples how this guy, like, he never would have had the life that he's had and the ability to express himself that he's had if it hadn't been for like this government leg up. And now he's all like, we shouldn't ban fox hunting. How dare you? You know, and like, these kids <laughs> today are so lazy and get off my lawn and all this uh, shit. I hate you know, that. It's so, but it's just like so transparent and it speaks to so much like the way that there's this sort of like baby boomer, um, like party line about millennials that we're lazy, that we don't like to work uh, hard, that we, you know, we, we've got no initiative and all this kind of thing. And it's really like, I mean, I think some of us have really internalized that because that's sort of like, you know, like when are you going to, you know, excel yourself when everyone's sort of telling you like, you know, what a coddled little garbage person you are, but like, <laughs> but like, that's just when you talk about these people that like are running these huge, you know, sort of like, companies i feel like there's a lot of that kind of just like being out of touch and like also like divorcing yourself from like the part of yourself that actually like has compassion 
and awareness of like the lived experience of other people and like oh yeah why shouldn't other people get these benefits that you've benefited from why are you cutting those off and like taking them away (laughs) and i think i think that's a really good call out because something that I have noticed throughout my career is that the people who are really running these companies are significantly older than most of the staff mm-hmm. and, you know, the customer. So we're talking people who are like in their sixties and at some point, and you can blame the millennials for this or blame whatever, whoever, what we expect from our workplace is a lot different than what boomers expected or people older than that. Like, for example, this is a big one. We expect to not be sexually harassed at work, right? We expect that we will not be talked down to because we're women, right? Well, we expect that we'll be taken seriously. Is even saying that, Amanda, you and I being like at the older end of the millennial spectrum, I absolutely experienced sexual harassment when I was like in my early 20s in a in a professional setting. And like you would say, like, you just didn't realize that like, that's not okay. Like it's still at my age, I thought it was something that you just kind of like put up with, <laughs> you know, because that's just totally. Is, you know? So that's totally, just like, totally, I, no. I feel like the sea change there has really come on in like probably the past five to 10 years, I think. Right. Right. I, I totally agree. In the early parts of my career, I experienced some really fucked up harassment and I just had heard from my mother that like this is just how work is right mm-hmm. so we we have these expectations and they also go to about like what the work culture should be like what the benefits should be like you know how meetings should be run how we should speak to one another like for example we should not be yelling at one another at work yeah. but I've definitely had bosses especially in the early part of my career who had no problem just like screaming at me I had someone throw a rolling rack of scarves at me mm-hmm. I mean this is like what the industry used to be. And we sort of made a change. And I remember specifically when I was at Nasty Gal, where this shift and this sort of generational shift, if you would, in terms of how we think about work, how we think about other people across the whole supply chain, like that idea of empathy, this divide became really apparent to me because a lot of our leadership had worked a very long career in retail. We had a lot of people from Lululemon. We had a lot of people from Gymboree, people from Hot Topic. And these were all people who were in their 50s, 60s. I mean, who knows, maybe even 70s. I have no idea. And technology and culture had changed so much during their career, but they couldn't accept that. Mm -hmm. So like they didn't want us to work from home because how could we possibly be doing any work, Mm -hmm. for example, right? But then conversely, it would be like, you should answer emails even on the weekend because then I know you care. So they were also embracing that aspect of it that was like a little younger. But there was just a lot of this, like how we should relate to our customers, how we should sell to our customers, how we should treat the staff. There was this huge divide that was really problematic where Mm -hmm. I like literally the CEO one day in a meeting was like, did you know that people buy stuff using their phones? And everybody in the room was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. I just bought, I just ordered cat food on my phone. You know, that, rem- you know like- that, that reminds me of something. It's completely irrelevant to what we're talking about, but it reminds me of this time. It was probably in about like 2008. And um, I, you know, like had my, my first like out in the world adult Netflix account when you would still get them in the, you know, they would mail you the DVDs. 
Ah, oh, the golden era. I, I was talking <laughs> to my mom and she works in a, in a library, in a small public library in a small New England town. And she was like, you know, this young guy came into the library and I just, I've got to- Oh my God, I know this story and it always tickles me. Okay. <laughs> and she was just like, you know, and he's, I think he like, I don't know, he like lived on a boat or in a carriage house. They always sort of live in carriage houses in this town. And so she's like, yeah, you know, and he came to the library. He was really nice. And then, you know, he just said this thing that made me think that like he could really be the guy for you. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, what What did he say? Mom was like, well, do you know how he watches his movies? And I was like, how? She's like, on his computer. <laughs> love match. I know. Total like, love match. That's your soulmate. How else? How else would you know? I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's just like he just that's the key to my heart, you know? Like we have so much in common. No one else does that. We're the Right, we're the right. No, I mean just like spiraling through the cosmos together with our computers watching two movies. <laughs> So imagine if your mom was like the CEO of a fashion company that sold clothes to 20 year olds, you know, like this is the disconnect that we're talking about. Like, yeah, people buy stuff using their phones or there was always this like, well, girls, when I was your age, I had to do everything by hand. We'd have all these computers to do our work. Like what? We're still working all the time. If anything, computers have made our work more complicated, right? Yeah, because it's like, instead of doing something where it's like, you you know you're i think it's like the the whole like measure twice cut once sort of philosophy where if you're doing it in such a way that like you really don't want to have to do it again then you're much more meticulous whereas on the computer it's this illusion that everything is just like constantly available to be tweaked and retouched and i feel like people that i've encountered that work in like graphic design really feel the sharp end of that because they're like oh it's just oh yeah you can just like well i want it like this now and so and I feel like they just work like all night long and just like yeah yeah I know and this like nasty Gap was a great example of this older leadership who was like well when I was your age I didn't have any computers to do my work and we had been clamoring for reports for so long like the reporting we had was really complicated it would involve a planner having to do all kinds of excel wizardry to pull it together it would often be inaccurate you would make crazy decisions based on it that would end up being huge mistakes and our head of finance, who was like just the classic guy who thinks all women are dumb, okay? Uh-huh. He and like and demanding, dumb and demanding. He was recently divorced himself and lived in some weird high rise building for divorced middle aged men. He got up and gave this speech at a company meeting where he was like, you know, when I learned from my dad the importance of building with simple tools like a hammer and nails and maybe a level and you can make beautiful stuff out of that. So I need you girls to stop complaining about reporting and get out your calculator and get out your pencil and do the work. And we were like, uh, what should we clap? What should we do? Do you want me to go like fetch my abacus? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, there were a lot of abacus jokes after uh-huh. that for sure. Cause I was like, why is he so newfangled with his calculator? I'll, I'll get out my slide ruler, <laughs> you know? And like, so why are we using, why are we even using papers and pens? Shouldn't we be doing this on tablets and cuneiform? <laughs> Wouldn't that be <laughs> Right, right. I mean, why are we even accepting credit cards? I should just wait outside and people can bring up bags of change or goats to trade for their dresses. You know, like the irony to me is that we have these people who are so out of touch with how we live our lives and how their customers live their lives, how their employees live their lives. 
who completely lack any level of empathy. And yet they are the ones pulling all the levers to make us buy stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, that right there, if that doesn't turn you off shopping, then I don't know what will. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like, I think that that is like a really um, like key element to fracturing the illusion is to just be like, okay, say you had some kind of like, I don't know, like a psychedelic implant or like a like a black mirror thing that happened to you, where like every time you looked at an influencer, you saw like the power behind that and you realized it was just some like, you know, like old reptile. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, imagine that. If you had like that kind of x-ray specs, that kind of like, because honestly, like that's, something that is accessible to us all and i think it's becoming more and more apparent like it's really not even like a question of having to like change who you are like if you're already like a person who cares about other people then you just need to like apply that to like your purchasing you know and and like you say always don't give your money to assholes so like maybe you see a shirt that looks cute and then like you know as you were looking at that shirt just think about like you know the the people that are not getting paid less than $2 an hour to make that shirt. And then it's like, how cute is that shirt Yeah, now? when you see what really went into it, you're like, eh, that's disgusting. That's not like, that's not stylish at all. You know, that's not. That's not No, it's not to use the, the industry term, good use of it. It's not aspirational. I really want us to all think more about what Jillian just said there at the end. Like, look at the garment or anything else you're going to purchase and imagine the working conditions for the workers involved in making, shipping, and selling that item. Envision its impact on the environment, all the water used, all the carbon emitted. Suddenly, it makes just about anything unappealing. And I think that's one step of curbing our consumption. Only buy the things that look good after you envision all that. Jillian will be back for one more installment on Wednesday, where we'll be talking about, among other things, our strong anti-brunch sentiments. (laughs) You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. Just a reminder to check out the Clothes Horse Buy Better Holiday Pledge on Instagram. If you plan on buying gifts, and seriously, you don't have to, please remember how powerful your money is. I mean, it's not just powerful now. It's powerful all the time, year round. Spend it where it makes a difference. Buy from local small businesses. I know smaller businesses can be a little harder to find, so I'm just going to shout out my friends at Gooder Gift Guide again. That's at Gooder Gift Guide on Instagram, and they launched on Black Friday. They're curating all kinds of amazing gift lists to make shopping better, easier for you. And in the next few days, they'll be posting a list that I put together of teen gifts. (laughs) I'll post about it on Instagram. Don't worry. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple podcasts. Of course, I'm going to say that and tell your friends, guess what? We're getting very close to 10,000 downloads, which is a huge milestone for me. So clearly all of your recommendations are paying off and I'm very grateful. I'm planning a special giveaway in honor of crossing that threshold. So more details to follow when we hit that number, but thank you for getting us this far. Also, thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. 
I love it when I see it. I love seeing your shares, hearing your encouragement and suggestions. Sometimes you send me articles, cute pictures of kawaii stuff. I love it all. You're all the best. And hearing from you makes me so happy and a time where, to be honest, I would otherwise be pretty lonely because it's just me and Dustin and our cats out in the country. <laughs> I'm sure you're in a similar situation, right? Also, I said it before, I said it again. If you ever want me to share a source for the statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, any other the facts I share, get in touch. I save them all. I double check them because you know what? I'm not a journalist, but I'm really committed to providing you with accurate, true facts and information because that's harder than ever right now. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Close Horse? Well, drop me a line at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM me via Instagram at closehorsepodcast. Also, don't ever hesitate to reach out with a question because I love researching the answer. Y'all know that by now. If you want to meet some other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group, and I'll also share a link to that in the show notes. And don't forget the Close Horse hotline. Seriously, technology is amazing. The phone number is 717-925-7417. Give me a call, even if you just want to say hi, tell me something random, tell me what you're doing for the holidays, ask me a question, tell me a story, talk about your collections. I don't care. Just call me. I love it. And don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend, Kim. We talk about trends, taste. We tell weird stories. This week is part one of our tragic trends deep dive. And this one is specifically about the hashtag girl boss movement slash trend. Part two will be coming on Tuesday in just a couple days. I know a lot of you are eagerly awaiting and we do talk a lot about our times at nasty gal, but also in general, our times working as women in business in the industry. I think you will love it. So check it out. Thanks as always to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.